What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are on episode 53 of the show last week. I was speaking about the mindset that you need to overcome uh, missing out on those really big opportunities in life. And this week, I'm going to be changing gears a little. I'm going to be introducing you to a really good friend of mine who just happens to be an amazing business coach and mentor. Now, Daniel Priestley is a Uh, Well, he's an extremely successful entrepreneur. He's managed to go and build uh, not just a big business, but a global business. He's operating in three different continents, and the business name is Dent, as in to make a dent in the universe. Now, he is an author. He has four best-selling books on entrepreneurship. The first one I read was called Key Person of Influence, which I learned about on a podcast that he did with somebody else a couple of years ago. And as I am known to do occasionally, I went straight to Amazon and downloaded the book and had it read cover to cover within, you know, a few hours. And what I learned uh, in that book, it was so kind of interesting and so powerful for me that I immediately kind of looked up the um, more about Daniel. And I learned that he had a program in London called KPI, which helps you create a personal brand. Basically, it's called the KPI Brand Accelerator. So I went ahead and I joined up and I did that uh, program and fast forward two years, here I am with my own podcast, having my own conversation with the author himself, with Daniel. And let me just say, there are so many useful nuggets in that book. It's just incredible. You have got to go and pick yourself up a copy of that book. It is definitely in the top five of business book recommendations that I would give. Now, given I tend to cover real estate on this podcast, some of you are going to be wondering why I've brought somebody like Daniel in, because Daniel is not involved in property in the industry at all, but he is an incredibly successful businessman. And as I am well aware, and as you guys will learn, um, if you're not already aware, building a successful real estate business is not just about real estate. There are so many other important aspects that you've got to get right. And the areas that Daniel covers are branding, positioning, sales and marketing, supply and demand, tension, building interest in products or stuff that you're selling. And Daniel is just a genius around all of this stuff. So you really got to pay attention today. Um, Now, I have put a number of links to his books and his accelerator program in the show notes. If you have any interest at all in growing your business, then I strongly recommend you pick up a copy of the book, Key Person of Influence, as soon as possible. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you to Mr. Daniel Priestley. Daniel Priestley, welcome. How are you doing? I'm very well. Lovely to be on your podcast. It's great to have you here. And uh, where does this podcast find you? Where are you at the moment? I am in the same place that I've been for the last 18 months, which is in my home, um, hardly leaving hardly leaving the neighbourhood ever. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah. um, and that's, the, that's around London, isn't it? Yeah, near Wimbledon. Yeah, because people are going to be picking up on that accent and thinking he's definitely not. Because from he doesn't sound like someone from London. Although yeah. in London, I do sound like someone from London, people from all over the place. But uh, yeah, I was born in Australia. 
Uh, I left Australia when I was 26, and then I've lived in London ever since, so about 15, 14, 15 years. Okay, wow. And whereabouts in Australia were you from? Well, I kind of did retirement first uh, in my life. So I grew up in a place called Maloolaba, uh, which is a place called the Sunshine Coast, right. and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is just endless sunshine and beaches and forests, and it's just basically the most beautiful location you could possibly uh, spend time in it's it is just miles and miles and miles of beaches wow sounds pretty idyllic for a childhood anyway yeah yeah I, I took it very much for granted but now that I live in London I kind of do have pangs of uh, of walking on the beach uh, more often yeah I can imagine and uh, in terms of I mean we're going to get into a lot of the different things today I mean obviously COVID the impact and because the last time you and I met person to person was actually one of your events in London in 2019 I think it was the event that JP started speaking for the first time after his terrible accident and uh, and, uh, and that was actually our last major event was it really okay yeah. it's amazing how things have changed um, so we'll get into all of that, but just for the purpose of um, the audience that, um, you know, there'll be some people here that won't know who Daniel Priestley is. Can you just kind of give us a bit of a backstory? I mean, you've told us you're from Australia, but just a little bit of you know, your late teens, 20s kind of. What, so what? Uh, from 19 to 21, I was uh, employee number three at a fast growth startup and we grew uh, to about 60 people in two years while I was there and about six or seven million of, of revenue. Um, I was taken under the wing of the founder who was uh, 37, 38 at the time. And um, basically I was his kind of dog's body, right-hand man, um, shadow. So everything from picking him up and dropping him off at airports, licking stamps and put it, sending out physical mail, uh, making cold calls, making warm sales calls, um, uh, weekend meetings because that was the only time we could meet, uh, finding an office, relocating, like basically everything. Um, so it was kind of strangely, I would almost describe it as an entrepreneur apprenticeship. Um, like it was, it was very much like doing entrepreneurship, but without the risk for those two years um, that, that, that we went through that. So at, at the end of two years, I had actually set up a sideline division of his business uh, his main business was in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. I'd set up a sideline in um, Bendigo, Ballarat, uh, Cairns, and Hobart, just a regional, um, basically copying what was happening in the main cities in regionals. Um, it only did 700000 of revenue, but it was very profitable. It did about a quarter of a million of profit. Um, so it was a lot more profitable percentage terms than, uh, than the uh, big city business. And I was super pumped when I saw the P&L and I went to him and said, um, uh, John, I've just made you a quarter of a million. Can I get some shares in the business? And he said, uh, Daniel, if you want shares in a business, you should go start your own. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, wow. Uh, the following day, I think it was, I got dragged into the CFO's office who, was, um, who had been brought in to kind of grow the business up. And she sat me down over a coffee and said, uh, basically a speech along the lines of, Daniel, you're not special. All um, right. <laughs> One of those. Yeah. And, um, and then about a week later, I got a bonus of $500 for making the company quarter of a million dollars. Um, so it was, was on the wall. Like, it was like slap, slap, slap. And uh, I, I put the $500 as a bar tab behind the 
behind a bar and invited all my friends out and we got, you know, nicely uh, intoxicated and uh, the following day I woke up with a hangover and I remember going for a long walk and sitting on a bench just looking at the, uh, the river and I decided to quit my job and go and start up in competition and uh, basically start a start a, start my own business. So John's advice, if you want shares in a business, go start your own. I kind of went, you know what, I'm going to go do it. So at 21, I started my own company. It became a fast growth startup, zero to a million in the first year. Uh, by year three to four, we were doing 11 million. Wow, fast growth. Wow, yeah, very fast growth. And um, and what was this sector that you were in? I mean. You went so into competition with your former employer. Basically. Yeah, it was basically, essentially we would do, it was a hybrid of being a marketing agency focused on event promotion. And um, it was, uh, I guess you would say an event promotions business. Um, and we would do roadshows in particular for when we, when we hit our peak, we were doing roadshows for franchises and we were roadshowing them around Australia, finding their franchisee networks. And, um, and basically taking risk and also taking a reward for signing up franchisees. Um, so we would um, like coordinate uh, uh, the big contract that made the most money was a contract to put on 270 live events to promote a, uh, a new franchise. And basically, uh, you know, we, we, we rolled that out across Australia. We had um, upside uh, commission on every, on every franchise. We, we actually took the risk on, uh, some of the overheads and costs. So we're in partnership with a company and be we became their marketing engine. Um, right. right. We Super were, pr profitable. Yeah. yeah. Very profitable. Yeah. Um, mind you, we did another one. We'd, we, we did a, a DVD vending machine um, at the last possible moment that that would have been a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> like it was the, the idea of video streaming at that time was not really a thing, um, but obviously, uh, anyway, I, we, we did a contract around that. We did a latex mattress um, sleep system. Anyway, we were rolling out doing roadshows up and down Australia, taking percentage, taking ownership, um, and, uh, and basically it was a very lucrative business. We found hot products and we, um, we ramped them up. Um, so uh, I'd made a bit of money at 2005 <clears throat> and I wanted to travel, got the opportunity to come to London um, and bring an international speaker to London. Uh, I turned up in London. I'd never been above the equator. I put on a dinner party for all the top influencers that I could get my hands on in London. Uh, 28 people showed up to the dinner. 26 of them decided to do a joint venture partnership with me to launch a new business in, uh, in London we did 800 grand in the first three months. So we did you know, just burst into the scene. And, and can you just, can we just go back there? How do you arrive in London from, from, you know, your first time and, and organize 28 people to come to a dinner party? Can you just take us through some of that uh, process. Yeah. So uh, essentially um, I, there was a website at the time that was a precursor to LinkedIn called Academy. Um, I remember I, that. Yeah. I, I remember. later ended up being the managing director and buying it and actually owning it. Um, right. And uh, But at the time, basically, I arrived in London and the biggest online network was Academy. And it ranked people by how influential they were and how many people were following them. And, you know, similar to today, obviously, with followers and that sort of stuff. Um, so I got in touch with the uh, owners of Academy, Thomas and Penny, and I said, I'm in London and uh, what should I, what do you think I should do in order to launch my business? And Thomas said, well, 
why don't you put on a dinner party for the most, uh, for the top people on the academy? And um, I said, great idea. So I literally hired a restaurant, a private dining area. And, um, and I, I said, Thomas, will you come and I'll cover your, your dinner? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And then I thought, I'll just cover everyone's dinner. So I just got in touch with people and said, look, Thomas is going to be there. Um, so I had one influential per- person there. I said, Thomas will be there and uh, I'm covering dinner and wine. So do you want to come along and have a nice dinner and hang out with the most influential people on the Academy? And they all said, yes, they all had big uh, email databases. Um, so pretty much everyone I spoke to had an email database of 10,000 and up. Uh, and then that was essentially the, um, yeah, the, the first you know, out of 28, I did 26 JV partnerships. So on the right. night, I walked around with my diary. Uh, I had the following two weeks free. Obviously, I'd just arrived and uh, I basically up. walked in. We had coffees and, and did deals. Interesting. And did you have a partner at the time? Uh, so I I did it under the same brand as my business in um, uh, in Australia, and we did have uh, an earn in with one of the people in the business who was earning who was earning his way into that business. But his his earn in was based on running the Australian business. Okay, okay, I get you. And do you still have an involvement with that, or did you sell it, or did it up? So uh, here's what happened: uh, the business grew very successfully. We got up to about four million in revenue going into 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis. Um, our, our revenue was coming from two main sources. We were bringing one guy in from the US and we were his UK promoter. Um, and we we're bringing one guy in from Asia and we were his UK promoter. So we essentially had two major contracts and doing about two million a piece with each, um, with each contract. Uh, and we were very profitable. We were a great company and um, having lots of fun running big events. We ran events up to 3,000 people and, um, you know, lots of fun, lots of AV. We hired out the London Palladium Theatre one time which is a £32,000 venue hire, Um, you know, like just just all sorts of fun stuff. And we were, you know, very, still pretty young, 27, 28 sort of thing. Um, And having a great old time. And then uh, the the global financial crisis hit and a couple of things happened that my my contract in the US was paid in US dollars. And if you remember at the time, the pound tanked against uh, against the US dollar. And it basically made that particular product 30%, 35, 40% uh, more expensive. Um, and at a time when the market's dropping and the yeah. cost is going up, so I had to cancel it. I basically said, we're not going to run those events anymore. Um, and then the um, Singapore uh, company that I was working with, um, they went into a bit of a spiral down and he decided he didn't want to come to the UK anymore. Um, so I was in, uh, I was basically productless. Right. So, hired a consultant, um, tried to sell the business, got an offer for 300,000 pounds, 150 grand and 150 grand in a year. And I was just shocked. You know, we'd done 4 million. um, We'd done 4 million with 600,000 profit. And the shell of the business with no product was theoretically worth 300 grand. Anyway, on the day of exchanging the money, um, uh, he, the guy actually had a heart attack and went into hospital. No. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't pass away, but <laughs> he didn't do the deal. And um, anyway, I spoke to the consultant. I said, why is this business not worth anything? Like, why, why have I built it? Why have I spent, you know, several years building something that isn't actually marketable? He said, oh, that's easy. That's because you're a brokerage. You, you're essentially, you don't own the value. You know, you're kind of like a car yard selling cars for BMW and Audi 
but you don't really own anything. You, you're just a basic kayak. Um, so the broker fees and stuff instead of the actual, said, yeah. Said, look what happened to the business. As soon as you couldn't broker something, your entire business stopped. Um, so I said, well, what's the answer to that? And he said, well, you've got to own assets. You've got to be, you got to become a software business or an intellectual property business. You've got to own something as opposed to uh, being a brokerage model business. So what was great is we went fishing through the whole business to look for intellectual property and potential for media and what could we own. And, you know, um, and part of the intellectual property was this idea called key person of influence, which was essentially my observations working with super highly paid authors and speakers for the last 10 years. Um, and, um, and I wrote, a, wrote the book, Key Person of Influence, uh, and, um, and basically started bedding down and formalizing my own intellectual property. And it was only, I think, a year and a half later that we raised money at 9 million valuation. So um, raised 450,000 uh, pounds at a 9 million pound valuation. And it's funny so for the for the same business. Is it that didn't that we morphed the business? So right. the old business was called Triumphant Events. Um, Triumphant Events. We we morphed into what we called Intrivo, which stood for Entrepreneur Revolution. But no one could say it, spell it, or remember it. So we rebranded to what is today Dent, right? And uh, make a dent in the universe. Um, so we went through a few little uh, learning cycles, but ultimately we ended up with a with a much much more valuable company. And you know today. We're a global business, office in London, uh, Sydney and Toronto. We've got uh, what's called a shared services division. We own our own film production, our own book publishing, um, our own IT services company. Um, you know, so we're quite a sizable business now. We do acquisitions. Um, we're very profitable. We're fast growth. Um, and not only that, we don't really rely upon anyone else outside. So we're not a brokerage in any way. We we run our own product. If you want our product, you've got to come to us for it. So it's a um, it's a much, much, much better business. Yeah. Uh, and then last year, we also spun out a technology company. So we found a piece of technology sitting inside the business, uh, which was some software that we developed for ourselves. Uh, we've spun that into its own business, and uh, we just raised money at $6 million valuation. That scorecard so, app, isn't it? Yeah. Score app, yeah. So, you know... Um, you know, and that's just a, a new little, new little uh, sideline uh, business. So uh, I guess you could say, yeah, my, my background is very entrepreneurial. Um, sure. and also learning in the streets, you know, had I had I had someone explain to me how to build a proper business, um, I probably would have gotten a lot further in the first 10 years, but, um, but we've, we've played catch up since. You've done a good job of that. That's for sure. Um, I was just going to ask you, I mean, Throughout that process there, what would you say was the biggest mindset shift um, between, I suppose it sounds as if it was the, the fact that you're holding assets? Um, yeah, the biggest mindset shift was, um, it, it's what I, today I describe it as recognizing the mountain of value that you're standing on. Um, and I use a metaphor that if you climb a mountain and you're standing right at the summit of the mountain, you can see everything but the mountain. You can actually you know, look across the horizon and see other mountains. You can see lakes and rivers and streams and forests, but you can't see the mountain that you're actually standing on. Um, and uh, the mindset shift is when you suddenly realize, oh, wait a second, I, I know some stuff and I've got some potential right, right close. I don't have to go and pursue Bitcoin or, you know, funnel hacking or some cool new thing. I've actually got incredible amounts of value right beneath my feet. Um, and that, was very much a, a wake-up 
where I realized that the, the, the most valuable asset in the economy is called intellectual property. And intellectual property very easily turns into media and media turns into software. And essentially, if you can identify your intellectual property and then transform that into media and software, you end up with an extremely valuable company very quickly. It's a very repeatable process, um, you know, and, and you can actually capture a lot of the value. Mm. Uh, you know, so that's, you know, th those were some of the key lessons about the actual process of capturing, turning ideas into equity value. In terms of, I mentioned that this was this is typically a property related audience. Um, you don't have any role in, in property investing or anything like not that. Not in a business sense. I hold property, but um, you know, but uh, not not. I'm not a property entrepreneur per se, or a developer, or anything like that. Do you um, think that the property sector is ripe for the kind of stuff that you're talking about, IP and uh, all that kind of stuff? I think it's a very complementary business. I think if you can take cash flow from business and put it into property, that's a that's a pretty uh, solid <laughs> strategy for multi generational wealth. Um, it's a good store of wealth, all right, for sure. Yeah, the issue that I have with property is extremely low yielding in most cases. You know, if you buy a uh, if you buy a property and you can genuinely walk away with three percent yield, you've done pretty well. Um, people say, oh, I know how to get 10% yield. And I'm like, okay, but how much of your time is going into that? Because if we put a value on your time, you're not getting a 10% yield, you're getting a 3% yield and 7% is your time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and sometimes I see people who they go, oh, you know, I know how to get much higher yields. And I go, yeah, but you're taking extraordinary risk um, with capital. And, um, you know, ultimately there's no way around it. Property, property has become very highly inflated. And the yields can't, the, the, the equity values can go much higher than the yields. So um, it's, you know, it's become less attractive from that point of view. But the opposite is true for intellectual property businesses. So, for example, you can, let me give you a high level example, because I know your listeners are actually quite advanced. Um, you can develop a piece of software for say 50 to 60,000. You can then further develop it for another 200,000. So you could be, all in on a piece of software that you've built for less than 300,000. And that SaaS product could be something that you, you know, quite easily get 1,200 users at 60 pounds a month or something like that. Um, that business is then now spitting off, um, you know, 50, 60,000 a month. And, um, and, and you've only spent 300,000 in development. Uh, so six months repair, yeah. You know, you've got, obviously it requires skill, but everything requires skill, you know, like, so, um, you know, you try, it's pretty extraordinary when you look at it from that point of view, three, 300,000 invested 50 grand a month um, cash flow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mind you, let's, let's call it, let's be real. It's probably half of that in cost, but, um, but it's absolutely doable. Absolutely yeah. doable. And then the multiple is, is, is much greater than a realistic. Well, yeah, four times, you'll get a four times, um, once you hit 5 million in, uh, in revenue, you'll, you will definitely get a four times um, cash value, four times revenue valuation. So, you know, if you can be doing 5 million uh, of, um, of, of revenue in a SaaS business, it, it is worth 20 million. I was going to move on to just COVID and the impact that it's had. I mean, when I attended your KPI brand accelerator back in 2019, I think it was probably one of the last sort of cohorts that went through with yeah. the in the person-to-person -person event. 
Um, can you describe like the shift that you've had to go through with your business? Because it was a very well-oiled machine that, you know, brought in guys every kind of couple of months. And, and that all of us obviously has all been kind of turned on its head in, in you know, January or March of last year. Can you tell us what you've had to kind of repurpose the business? Yeah, so, the, you know, the first thing I did, having lived through, having been in business through the global financial crisis, the first thing I did when it, when it struck um, is like as soon as the first case was in the UK, uh, I cancelled all my office buildings. Um, so all my offices, we cancelled our leases. Um, some of them we had three-month notice, some of them we had six-month notice. But I knew that if China had sh- was going to shut down, um, then there the rest be- of the world was followed, yeah. It was, it was going to, and I also knew this was not going to be some small thing. This was going to be a global uh, thing. So, so I immediately cancelled those offices. I just cancelled pretty much, I cancelled all my credit cards so that every expense had to be re- uh, rationalized um, mm. on so basically as soon as you cancel your credit cards all the companies start knocking on your door saying hey do, you know we've can we get you to re-sign up for this um, so so that was that was great and then as soon as the government announced furlough I put everyone on furlough and then started bringing people back as I needed them right okay. um, uh, so I ran the business with a few of the contractors and all, all employees went on to furlough. So we were we were super decisive right at, right from the outset because I'd been through the global financial crisis and I knew that when that rug gets pulled, uh, you know, you want to be you want to basically change gears with with, with the overnight. Economy. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I turned to very much turned on a penny, and that meant that we preserved cash and we we're you know I was very upfront with the team. Here's how we're going to play this out. Here's how it's going to work. Um, and the team, the team appreciated the honesty and the decisiveness. Um, and then we sort of had to rethink, well, you know, God, for 10 years we've been running as an events business. And then we said, well, we're not really an events business. We're an intellectual property business. So we relaunched the business as a uh, delivered online Zoom, live streaming, live interaction uh, workshop, but with one little change. And the one little change is that rather than having a full day, uh, together in a room, which is very much dictated by the idea that if anyone, if everyone's going to turn up to a venue, they don't want to turn up for half day; they want to turn up for a full day. But with Zoom, it's actually just as easy to run a three-hour event, or as, and and it's actually not fun to do nine hours on Zoom. Yeah, right? I can totally relate to that one. Yeah, for sure. So what we did is we just broke the broke the program down. Rather than doing it in days, we just broke it down into three-hour chunks, and. Um, uh, and, and suddenly the outcomes of the program went through the roof because people love to learn in three-hour chunks and they, they learn and then they go do and then they learn and they go do and they learn and they do. And we actually started getting much better results from the clients because, uh, you know, we could, you know, just not overwhelm people with content in a full day. The other thing that happened is we built these online dashboards where we could actually see people doing the work. We have a master sheet that I have as my, as my dashboard and everyone who's doing the work is actually filling in their sheet um, uh, as we're going. So I can just glance at one screen and actually see who's struggling, who's doing well. Um, and I've got a team behind the scenes now who can kind of uh, highlight things as green, yellow, or red. So let's say we're putting together a pitch. Uh, we're going through and breaking that pitch down and I can see 60 people and we can go through and say that's green, that's green, that's green, that's green, that's yellow, that's red, 
uh, you know, and it basically shows up for people and they go, oh, okay, I better, better I'll make the back. socks up, pull the socks up. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a level of feedback and a speed of feedback that we could never do in person. Yeah. Uh, so, so you've made it work for, your, for you, actually. It's, it's hugely improved the program. Um, and, and, and not only that, we now have clients all over the world. So yeah, because the time zone kind of thing is gone. Yeah, yeah, we, we've got clients. You know, when I when I start a workshop, I typically say, "Where are you?" And it's, you know, it's Oslo, and um, it's you know South Africa, and Estonia, and Amsterdam, and um, Scotland, and Ireland, and you know, basically, just yeah, all over the time zone. You, you used to fly in, didn't you? I, I flew in every single month, and uh, yeah, it was, and I, and I kind of. In a sense, I enjoyed it because it was a full day that I would just, you know, turn off the phone and basically devote to to the content upload that we were going through. But um, I kind of thought to myself, you know, if you if it was a nine hour Zoom call, I don't know if I could handle that because it's just it's too much, too much to take on in a screen. You need yeah. that kind of personal interaction and going out for a walk for lunch with somebody and, and having a chat and catching up. So. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it's um, it's been a much improved uh, thing, and actually a lot easier than flying in and um, and having to kind of stay in a hotel overnight. I had to stay; I couldn't get an early flight that would make make the program in the morning, so I I decided to stay the night before. And then at five thirty, when it was finished, I was like straight to the airport, quick to try and get out. Yeah. So it was uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a, a bit of a handful. So it does sound like a big improvement now. Yeah, yeah. So we've used it to our advantage. Yeah. And tell me this, you mentioned that you've cancelled all your office leases and stuff. You know, when the pandemic is over, do you see yourself going back to an office or do you see, you know, continuation of what you're doing now? Um, I can imagine that we'll probably have a, a hot desking office, but probably one third the size. Um, most of my team are actually very happy working from home um, and a small number of them would rather work in, uh, in the office. Um, and what we'll probably do is have access to some boardrooms and we'll do every two weeks, we'll actually do a, like a half day together in the boardroom and, you know, kind of sync up around that sort of stuff or, um, you know, we'll, we'll get the team together, you know, for special, for reasons, good reasons why we need to get together. But we have actually fallen into a good rhythm now of having our whole team just, you know, we have our team meetings on Zoom and all of that, um, and how do you keep the, the the kind of the corporate culture aspect of it going um, in a remote environment like that? Yeah, we use we use several hab- habits, key habits. So the first habit that we have always had is a ninety day reset. So the ninety day reset is where we get the whole team together every ninety days, and we essentially celebrate what we've achieved in the last ninety days, and we set ourselves up for the next ninety days. We talk about the three year vision, the one year um, mission and the 90-day milestones. And every single person has to walk away from that 90-day reset with, um, with their own dashboard. So um, on the dashboard, we, we call it the sleep at night metrics. So what are, what are the main things that allow you to know that you are doing a great job and you can just sleep at night? Go to sleep at night knowing that you're doing great. So what key metrics are, uh, are happening? And every single um, person has to be part of an asset sprint. So every 90 days, Everyone on the team is also creating new assets in the business um, as part of their role as well. So that all gets set up as, as the 90-day uh, sprint. Then we have our weekly meetings. 
So a, a quick briefing in the Monday morning uh, and then a, a debrief on Friday afternoon. Um, so those quick meetings uh, kind of make sure that we're just into a good rhythm of, of together and we do those on Zoom as well. Uh, and then the next thing we do is have transparent dashboards. Everyone's got a, a dashboard so everyone can see everyone else's dashboard as well. Right. So <clears throat> it's very clear what people are working on and whether they're hitting their goals. Um, and the dashboards are there for everyone to see. So, um, so we've got a company dashboard, uh, a regional dashboard, and then individual dashboards. Um, so that's, that's nice. Um, and then the next two things is about communication. So making sure that we're always communicating through Slack and we're trying to avoid WhatsApp groups and trying to avoid getting on, you know, we, we want to keep the communication to as few channels as possible so that you always know where communication happened. Um, you don't Focused, want to, yeah. You don't want to be sitting there going, did I, did I message you that on Instagram yesterday or did I yeah, send yeah. you an email or how did I send that folder? And then the final part is just making sure that we're good with tech stack. So making sure that we keep our technology well organized, um, that we're using the best tech, um, that we're exploring better and new ways to utilize technology and that we're just keeping our files and our folders nicely organized and up to date. So those are the big five habits. And actually, if you get those five habits right, um, you, you can actually get a lot done without uh, without having people physically in the same room. Yeah, no, I can see how that, like, it's the well-oiled machine metaphor that I just gave. It's, it's, I can see actually how that, you know, pulls everyone forward kind of at the same time. And um, I wanted to ask, I mean, obviously you've moved now online, but I have a feeling that when online events are allowed or when, sorry, when physical events are allowed, that there's going to be a preference for them in some ways because, you know, the, the energy that you get from an, on, from an online versus a, an in-person event. Do you see yourself going back to kind of a hybrid of both or, or what would you see the future there? Um, I see that for us, the future of physical events will be, we used to run a lot of physical events for our potential clients, so our prospects. And, you know, we'd have 400 people in a concert theatre as, as a way of people to have a first experience with us and get to know us and sort of see what we're all about. Um, and that that was very successful for us. We do it twice a year in each time zone and the kind of in each city that we're in and, and that would work quite well. I think what we're going to do is drop those, um, but what we will end up doing is retreats with clients. Um, so rather than running physical events for the people who don't know us, we'll run physical events for people who really know us. For the small few that know yeah, you. Yeah, so I would love to do stuff like take 40 clients to Morocco and have a four-day retreat where we do, you know, we get to know each other better, we hang out, we spend time by the pool, we do conference talks, um, we have some uh, potentially some like competitions and, um, you know, just kind of have a really cool four-day retreat um, to learn and to develop and have a focused, you know, focused outcome. But also just not only will there be a focused element to it, there'd also just be a fun element to it. And everyone, everyone knows that everyone else speaks the same language and has a similar uh, status or achievement level, um, you know. And, and I can see, I can see us doing a lot more of those. Yeah, 
that sounds like a really good one, all right, because I'm I'm already thinking about, geez, I wouldn't mind joining that when it's <laughs> when it's available. Tell me this, um, in terms of, I mean, we were talking before we we started the record that you have three kids, I have five. Raising kids, I mean, first of all, let's start back to y- y- your father, Andrew, is a, he's a, a business coach as well. So how much of his occupation would you say rubbed off on you uh, growing up? When I was growing up, he was a school teacher. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. Know, he was always a teacher around my school or, or a nearby school. And, um, you know, it was, it was actually around the same time when I was just finishing school and getting, um, getting into um, working in a startup myself. It was only about a year earlier that he became a business coach. So, um, you know, we kind of were both, you know, in that, in that sense, we we're both learning at the same time, but obviously dad has always had a massive interest in computers. He's had a huge interest in marketing. He was a desktop publishing business for a while. Um, you know, he, he's always had graphic design and, and those things. He's had a few side hustles actually as a school teacher. Um, and uh, yeah, so I definitely picked up an entrepreneurial spark from dad. Mum's a journalist. So I picked up my writing, my love of writing from her. Um, but uh, yeah, he, you know, he wasn't necessarily a business coach for most of my childhood. Um, uh, Interesting. Yeah. And, and in terms of, I mean, you've, you've co-authored a book with Jody Cook uh, on mm-hmm. raising entrepreneurial kids. Can you give us a couple of uh, suggestions on, on, on the way to kind of go about that? I have three teenagers that I'm trying to kind of uh, talk, uh, talk it up about, you know, starting, you know, a little side hustle for them and get them yeah. interested in this process. Well, it, it kind of, it's, you know, the, the schooling system is a great system that's done a great job for hundred, you know, a couple of hundred years. And, you know, we can pretty much thank the schooling system for the middle class in, um, in the industrial age. You know, it was, a, it was really a way to elevate the vast majority of people in the industrial, in the beginning of the industrial age, the vast majority of people were factory fodder at best, farm labor, you know, and the schooling system came along and actually upskilled huge numbers of people um, and created essentially a middle class. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, the schooling system doesn't teach you about how to manage money and how to become successful and doesn't teach you life skills. It's like, yeah, well, it wasn't really meant for that. It was meant to create a middle class who could, you know, get a middle job and, and, and you know, <laughs> the rest is up to you. Um, but with that said, something has shifted in the last 10, 20 years where, the schooling system is kind of preparing kids for a world that doesn't really exist anymore. So it's not, there are no careers in the local 10 mile radius. There are, there is no major employer down the road who's looking to hire you for 10 years at a time. And yeah. you know the, those sorts of things. It's very rare that someone actually has a career that kind of unfolds the way that the schooling system kind of thinks it should. Um, so, you know, even good jobs like doctors and nurses and, um, you know, fire and police and all those kind of things, they're, they're not even uh, funded the way that they used to be. So, so essentially, you've got to acknowledge that many of the skills that, that will take someone through their career are kind of entrepreneurial skills, pitching ideas. You know, in a fast-paced world, you're going to have to adapt and pitch and you're going to have to come up with new ideas and products and you're, you're going to have to be okay with things changing pretty rapidly and, um you know, all the stuff that entrepreneurs kind of deal with, uh, most people in their careers are going to have to start thinking that way. So first thing I'll tell you about the book is that it's not about trying to turn kids into entrepreneurs. You know, kid, childhood's 
should be childhood. It should be a fun, fun time to be a kid. Um, but it's about introducing them to entrepreneurial thinking and entrepreneurial ideas. So little things like asking kids, you know, what does this shop sell? Um, and why do you think people want to come to this ice cream shop? Oh, because it's a hot day. Okay, because it's a hot day, people want to have an ice cream and that's why they're buying ice creams. Um, you know, so just playing around with just that commercial awareness and, and kind of, you know, you might ask yourself uh, the question, this, you know, this person here, does that person, do you think they've got a job or do they own this ice cream truck? Um, do you think it's their business? And what sort of products do they have to buy in order to run this business? Depending on the age, right? Of course, so yeah. It's just introducing that idea of, okay, you've got to buy ice cream and you've got to buy cones and you've got to put that together and then you sell it. So they're just kind of seeing behind the scenes a little bit of a layer of how things are working. Um, using some language around entrepreneurship. So, for example, um, if a child wants a puppy, uh, you can talk about, well, how are you going to pitch the family that it's a good idea to have a puppy? Are you going to do some slide presentations? Um, you know, would you be able to put together a schedule of who's going to walk the dog? You know, all of these kind of things. So anything that a kid wants, you can actually use that as an opportunity to pitch the idea and to use the language of why don't you pitch that? So I want to have an Xbox. Well, here's my, here's my objections to having an Xbox. Let's, let's make a list of all of my objections and then let's see if you can present me with your answer to those objections. Um, and, and I want you to come back and present me with a presentation as to why you think that you can handle those objections. Um, and so yeah. that, so little things like that, just, just slowing the game down and seeing if you can interject a few of those things in there. Um, for, I've got very young kids, so one of the most valuable things that, um, that I teach them is uh, a sentence called the fun parts, building it, not having it. So when they're working with Legos, <clears throat> you know, there's three of them. So they're working with Legos, they're building some sort of a tower or some creation, and then one of the other ones sits on it and bang, you know, the whole thing is broken, and then uh, the upset, you know, the crying and all that stuff. Accusations. Uh, yeah, exactly. So the, the, the reflex statement that i've brought in with my kids is kids the fun parts building it not having it now you've got the opportunity to rebuild it you get to build it again um you know you, it was it's not fun having lego it's fun building lego and so we, we we reinforce this it's amazing how often this becomes relevant like it's almost a weekly occurrence that the fun part is building it not having it and what's interesting about that is that you know, my kids are going to live in a world where disruption is just going to happen again and again and again. You know, they're going to create something. It'll be the rug will be pulled out from under them. They'll create and disrupt and create and disrupt. And that, that'll be the norm for their career. You know, every four or five years, some massive disruption will come through and they'll have to start from scratch. Um, and if they believe that the fun part's building it, not having it, then they'll get on with that and they'll be okay with that. They'll learn to surf the waves of change. Um, you know, I've had the experience myself of, of sitting down with thousands of entrepreneurs. I've sat down with people who are still getting over stuff that happened 10 years ago. You know, <laughs> you know, I've sat down with entrepreneurs who say, well, let me tell you about my story. You know, I was going really, really well and then I got sick and I got a divorce and then this happened and then the business closed and, you know, that's been, it's been really hard. How long ago did that happen? Oh, in 2007. It's like, like yeah. billion-dollar startups happened. In the, in the interim, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's just get on with it. So 
the idea that the fun part's building it, not having it, is a useful idea to pack into their head. Um, uh, pretty, you know, pretty young. Pretty early. Yeah. yeah. And then the other one too is just being aware of some of the main shortcomings of school. So, for example, the worst thing you can be called in school is disruptive. Um, the best thing that Entrepreneur Magazine or Inc. Magazine could call you is disruptive. Yeah. So, so letting kids know that it's okay to be disruptive in the world um, and the teacher's trying to run a class and that that's why they don't like disruption. But actually, be, you know, it's good that you're a disruptive person. Being a disruptive person isn't necessarily a bad thing, but let's have an understanding about what's going on at school versus what's going on in the real world. Um, and let's let's respect that the teacher's doing a difficult job, but also that being a disruptive person is hugely valuable. Um, so having, having little things like that, um, teaching kids that getting the smart kid to do the homework is actually a really great life skill. Um, outside of school, that's not cheating. That's actually really smart. In fact, the CEO gets a CFO. They don't do the homework themselves. They don't Delegation, do the, yeah. Yeah, they delegate. They And they're specifically identifying who is the most talented person to do this work, and then they pass it on to that person. So acknowledging that when a kid thinks of that as an idea, that you should actually say, you know, that's an idea that will serve you really well in, in life. Um, in the particular situation that you're going through right now, mm. you've got to be able to acquire enough skills to to be able to know enough about a topic to be able to spot talent. Um, so you're going through a phase of learning, which is about individual learning, but what you're doing is not cheating. You're actually doing something that's very intelligent, right? It's very, it's, it's what you should be thinking about. Um, so these are some of the things that, uh, <clears throat> that, we, that we cover in the book and it's just how to have some of those difficult conversations. And it kind of, there's some ideas that immediately seem obvious, and you go, oh, why well, I should have always been telling my kids about that. That's really cool. And then you can kind of go and backtrack. And kids are so receptive to it. Yeah. A lot of this entrepreneurial stuff, even if you left it really late, like you got kids who are 16, 17, you can have some of these conversations and suddenly they're just, you know, they're like, they realize that it relates to money and success and they want it, you know. They're, they're driven. They're like, okay, t- teach me more about that. Why haven't you told me this before? Uh, so. it's true yeah I, I, it's funny and and you notice it in their personalities uh, my my daughters um my teenage daughters they're they're so different from one of, one of them is super super social and has you know over a thousand followers on her instagram already you know then another one is super academic and uh, you know she's the brain box who's kind of going to get the straight a's in all of her exams and stuff and then there's the disruptor who is the she wants to be youtuber she wants to do all this kind of stuff and you can see their personalities and it's not about like molding them one of them into the same you know it's, it's letting each of them go in their kind of direction yeah. and one of the cool things is that you can find entrepreneurs who are super successful who are similar to the, each of their personalities so potentially a great activity is showing them people like themselves who have done really well and you can say you know the extrovert let's have a look at oprah winfrey's story um the introvert let's go and have a look at um you know, one of the, the female CEOs who's who's um, behind the scenes but running a really tight ship, um, you know, so you can go go through and actually have a look at There's so many great examples. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Tell me, uh, on that topic, uh, Daniel, I just one of the questions I like to ask my guests is uh, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self now if you had an opportunity? Uh, well, uh, well I, here's the thing. I don't have an opportunity, so I'll, I'll think about, 
I'm quite happy with the way things worked out. And if, you know, if I was going to go back and talk to my 20-year-old self, I'd say go to Harvard, meet Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> lend him as much money as you possibly can. Um, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But more to the point, what advice would I give to a 20-year-old? Um, uh, and, you know, I talk about be brave, have fun, make a dent. So be brave is get outside the comfort zone as much as possible, have fun, follow passion, follow enthusiasm, um, use use passion and purpose as a clue that you you know that there's something there um, and um, and then make a dent do something that has impact on others and do something that's meaningful and that, that, that has has great impact um, and I would probably encourage uh, entrepreneurship so be, become an entrepreneurial apprentice go and work for people who inspire you for, for two to four years um, and you know I, I don't know where I would where I would have learned this stuff had I not done two years as an apprentice, I would really encourage 20 somethings to go and work in a small startup um, as, as a first part of their career. Um, one of the reasons for that is if you go and work at Accenture, uh, you're going to see a very small part of the business. You're going to be in some little tiny pocket doing a tiny thing. You might be an accounts receivable clerk in yeah. some thing. You've got no idea what's actually happening out there in the business. If you work in a company that has less than 50 employees, you know exactly what's happening with that business. You, you can see that what the salespeople are selling and how many order forms come in and you can see what's getting delivered and you can meet with the CEO. If you want to have a coffee with the CEO, you can have a coffee with the CEO. Uh, if you don't understand something, it's very easy to figure it out. But you get this holistic view of the organization and big organizations are obviously just fractals of small organizations. Mm. So by working in a small organization first, you end up, even if you do go down the career path working for a bigger company, you have this kind of innate knowledge of what the, you know, how businesses function, you know, how, how value gets created in the engine. So, um, yeah. And, and the other major advice for 20-somethings is just read. Read a book. Read a book every month. You know, read biographies. Read. Just, just get in and read that good, good content. Get yourself a mentor. Ask them what to read and, you know, read good books. Great advice. And party. And party. Enjoy yourself. No one says and party. Uh, And party. Like you're only going to be in your 20s one time and you're constantly going to be looking back and say, did I make the most of my 20s? Like there's going to be plenty of time for Ferraris. There's going to be, you know, you can spend the rest of your life pursuing houses, cars and, uh, you know, fame and fortune but there's only a very small window where you don't look like a fool standing up on a podium in a nightclub, you know, uh, throwing yourself around. So, so get up there on the podium. Yeah. You know? Good advice. Uh, Daniel, I'm, I'm respectful of your time. Just um, if people wanted to reach out and uh, connect with you, what's the best way to do that? So I'm on all the social media, um, but the other thing too is my best thinking is in my books. So a great place to start is there's four best-selling books in the Entrepreneur Journey series. So there's Entrepreneur Revolution, which is about the times that we live in and how to make the most of them. There's key person of influence around personal brand. Um, oversubscribed is campaigns, promotions, marketing, um, and 24 Assets is building a robust business that has um, intellectual property at its core and that you know that's scalable and stable. Um, so those are the four books. They actually unfold in a sequence the harry potter of entrepreneurship books mm-hmm. um and um you know j- jump into any of them that grabs you and and uh, and have a have a read 
Um, and if anyone wants to actually get a free copy of Key Person of Influence, email info at dent.global and uh, just let us know where you are. We'll either send you a PDF if it's hard to mail you a copy or if you're uh, easy to mail you a copy, we'll put one in the mail for you and physically send you a copy of Key Person of Influence just as a way to get started. Brilliant. Thanks. Well, I, I'm going to put a link to the books in the show notes for this podcast anyway. But um, Daniel, it's been a real pleasure and uh, some great advice there and um, wishing you all the best. And uh, we'll speak soon. Cheers, mate. All the best. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Daniel Priestley. He's a uh, he's a really, really nice chap. And, um, and also just uh, he's a very authentic kind of guy. And you wouldn't know just when you kind of meet him and stuff like that, you would not know he is as successful as he is. He's actually quite down to earth and um, he doesn't have a, a lot of the kind of the bullshit that you kind of see around people that are doing really, really well. So I really have a lot of time for Daniel. Anyway, that's it for episode number 53 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my number one ask is to leave a review or share this episode with someone you think would benefit from it. In the show notes, you'll find various things discussed today. And if you have any other questions or topics you would like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via my Facebook group, Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, look for me in social media using the handle Gavin J. Gallagher. And that includes YouTube, where I have my new YouTube channel. Uh, Lastly, you can stay up to date with the various events and challenges I'm working on by adding your name to my email list over at gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. All right, folks, that's it for now. I will see you again next week. Mm